And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, I'm going to jump right in. We've got quite a bit to cover this morning. Verse 10 of Acts chapter 9, Saul has arrived in Damascus blind. He's fasting. He's confused. He's vulnerable. He's like a wet little kitten sitting in the house of Judas on the street called Straight in Damascus. And the narrative shifts from a focus on Saul to a focus on the man who would come to disciple Saul, a man named Ananias. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, we see, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him a division, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. I love the simplicity of Acts chapter 9, verse 10. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he will speak to you, and you must reply, here I am, Lord, reporting for duty. So the first point of our message this morning is simple and short, and I won't talk a lot about it, except that it's beautiful, and you see it throughout the scriptures, is that a faithful saint, when they hear the Lord summon them, will answer. The Lord summons, and we answer. That's point number one. Point number two is a little more complicated, and that is the Lord commands and we argue. The Lord commands and we argue. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So the Lord calls us and we answer, here I am, Lord. And then the Lord asks us to do a hard thing. And we say, "Uh, no, speak English. You know, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. Uh, I don't have any fears about this message being relevant to any one of you in this room this morning. This is, I would say, about 80% of the struggle of the Christian life. Maybe 20% is learning, and 80% is doing the stuff we learned. Maybe 20% is, is hearing from the Lord, and probably 80% is just like learning to do the stuff that God calls us to do. So the Lord summons and we answer, but then the Lord commands and we argue. This is probably, as I said, the most common problem in the Christian life. Everybody here knows what this is like. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you know what this is like. You, you may have heard the Lord tell you, don't worry. That's, that's what he says, right? He, he says, hey, you, come here. And you say, yes, Lord, here I am. He says, I want you to stop worrying. And you will proceed to fill the Lord in, as Ananias did, on all the information you think he's lacking. Um, well, you know, Lord, there, there's a lot going on right now, and I just can't help it. And God says, well, yeah, you can. If, I wouldn't tell you not to do it if you couldn't not do it. Don't worry. God, God speaks clearly in his word about sexual purity. And he says, here's let there be no hint of sexual purity among you. And uh, we hear that clearly, and that's the 20% that we learn early on in our Christian life. Oh, this is, this is important. I'm supposed to 
make my body a, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable in his sight. And so there's the 20%, the learning. And then the rest of it is you telling the Lord how you're the exception and how you just don't understand God. There are these details and these difficulties that are bigger than your word and bigger than you. And so the Lord commands and we argue. The Lord says, I want you to be generous. I want you to give your resources to the local church, to those who are in need. And we say, got it, but, and then we fill the Lord in. We show the Lord our spreadsheet. You know, This is the information you're lacking. So this moment in Ananias should be, in some respects, assuring to you, because this is what happens when you are a disciple of Jesus. He summons you, you answer. You thought he was going to give you a hug. You know, you thought you were going to have one of those. What's the girl, what's the deal with the girly devotionals that, that they're like, I was out on my deck drinking coffee, thinking about the Lord. And a tender doe grazed across the, it's like, okay, yeah, well, I guess uh, that's part of the Christian life. But another part of the Christian life is I was on my deck and this doe walked by and God said, stop worrying, start giving and stop watching the stuff you're watching. You know, like, like God tells us to do stuff. That's a basic part of being a disciple. And, and how does God, since this is so common, I thought it would be good to just pause here and just ask, well, how does God help us to deal with this 80% problem in our lives where he commands and we argue? What's going on here? How, because we see by the end of this passage that Ananias overcomes this, and that's another part of being a disciple. It's, it's a matter of working through things. So how does God help Ananias? How does Jesus help Ananias get over this? How can we see in this passage sort of the way forward when God gives us a simple and clear command and we don't want to do it? Well, the answer to how does God do this is with more patience than you can imagine, right? So, so the, the, the baseline of all of this, if you want to understand this issue rightly, you need to understand how offensive doubting God is. I am not one who wants to glorify doubt. I want to acknowledge it as a reality of the Christian life, but I want to say that our lives would be much better without it. This passage of scripture would be better without Ananias' arguing. Uh, it would be a better passage. Of, it would be a better story if when the Lord said, go, Ananias just went, and you had this chunk missing of this argument. I don't want to glorify doubt. I think in our efforts to comfort people who are doubting, we can make it seem as if, here's how I say it, just because something's normal doesn't mean we should normalize it. You know, like, yes, doubt is normal. Yes, if you're experiencing it, you're in good company. There are lots of saints who do it. But our goal is not to doubt the Lord. That's not our goal. Doubt is extremely offensive to God. So when I talk about God's patience seeing us through this whole process, you have to understand how offensive doubt is to God to appreciate his patience and his love in dealing with us. So Martin Luther said this way, there is no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him as we do when we do not trust him. What greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, 
What greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is truthful? That is to ascribe truthfulness to oneself, but lying in vanity to God. So your doubts, let's understand our doubts are offensive to God. God doesn't deserve our doubts. And if God were operating in the way that we operate in relationship, he would be offended out of the relationship long ago. You hear what I'm saying there? Like, if this was about you pulling your weight and God pulling his weight, if your relationship with God was 50-50, then he would have been long, do, long, long, long past offended out of your relationship. Because these doubts are saying to the sovereign God of the universe, you don't know what you're talking about. You say you know all things, but here's something I'm sure you don't know and so on and so forth. So, so when I talk about God's patience seeing us through our doubts, I mean his patience and his steadfastness to endure the deep offense that our doubts bring to him. And yet he's so kind and he presses through that over and over and over again. Psalm 103, 13, this is such a comforting verse. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. I love what Jesus says as I was preaching that series on success redeemed. I kept thinking about this verse. I never got to share it, but I love what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. God is so patient that he will actually teach you. He will actually endure these highly offensive conversations like the one that Ananias engaged in, and he will press through that offensive language and say, here's the deal, here's why I'm telling you to do it, here's, here's, here's why I want you to do it, here's what you can expect, and so on. God's patience is the foundation of our perseverance in a relationship with Jesus we would have and will in some time in the future, probably today, offend God with our doubting of his word. And if God were the kind of God who would say, fine, you don't trust me, see ya. I've proven myself entirely trustworthy. I've never lied to you. I know all things. I know you better than you know you. You don't trust me? Okay. But God endures out of his steadfast love are doubting. Now let's dial in. We're going to keep dialing in a little bit more, a little bit more in this sermon, kind of about this idea, this, this thing that Ananias is struggling with. And I want to ask a, a series of questions that may help you as you are in this moment where God commands and you're arguing. So the first question would be this. Do you really want to obey? Are your questions, are your doubts rooted in defiance in an effort to distract your conscience or God as if he could be distracted? Or are your doubts rooted in a desire to obey? Now that's something that only you can know. But you would be dumb and prideful to assume that never once in your life have you doubted God for the purpose of distracting him 
or distracting you so that you can get away with further disobedience. In the Bible, we see this weird kind of uh, disparity, or it appears to be disparity. There seems to be this sort of arbitrary kind of uh, thing that God does where sometimes people doubt him, and he explains himself like he does here in Acts chapter 9. And then other times people doubt him, and he just zaps them, you know? And you kind of read those and you wonder, well, what's going on there? Why, 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 the, why the patience on one half and, and the zapping on the other half? It's like, well, a part of that has to do with just the elective love of God. God, God is long-suffering to those whom he has saved, and he is not long-suffering to those whom he has not, not in the same respect. But I think another way to look at it from the human perspective would simply be God knows your heart, and he knows whether your doubts are rooted in defiance or in a desire to obey. God knows. And how he responds to you will base, be based on your own heart. So the, the, the question to ask when you find yourself arguing with God is, now, am I arguing with God because I'm almost there? I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost ready to obey. I just, I just can't get there. You know, are you arguing with God in the perspective of, I believe, help my unbelief, or is the reality that this is an area of life that you just have no, uh, you have no interest in obeying God in, and your doubts are camouflage for defiance. You know that, I, or, or the Lord knows that. You may not know that. I certainly wouldn't know that, but I, I'm just pointing to this sort of, this, this arbitrary idea that, that's not arbitrary at all. Someone once told me, I think this is a cool idea, it's a little simplified, but you know, that, that if you're standing on the Continental Divide, you know, in the Rockies, and, and you spit on one side, the water will wind up in the Pacific Ocean, and if you spit on the other side, the water will wind up in the Atlantic Ocean. It's, you know, it'd have to be a fair amount of spit. But there is this, 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 this Continental Divide where everybody appears to be the same, all doubters appear to be the same, but they're not the same. Some people are doubting out of a desire to obey. They just need help getting there. And some people are doubting out of a desire to defy. The second point just to see in this passage is, is that because all of this is so kind of gray and, and subject to discernment, and because our fears, which is what is going on here, Ananias is afraid, and, and 80% of our 80% is probably fear. Most of our, our, our concerns about obeying God are rooted in fear. Because fear is illogical, because fear is, is sort of the chicken with its head cut off, facts alone will not assuage your fears. If you were to try to use the Bible only without the Holy Spirit, the Bible only without Christ, to assuage your fears, it would be like trying to teach a five-year-old calculus. You know, it, it, it's just that the, the, the two things aren't going to work out. Your fears are not open to reason. Your fears are not open to uh, objective truth. And so what you really need when you're in this moment where you're like, I don't know, I, I, I think you're right, I know you're right, but I'm afraid to obey. Why do I keep falling back into this sin over and over again? Like, what's going on? Why am I arguing with you with my behaviors you might not even be arguing verbally with God. You're just arguing with him with your choices. It's like, why am I doing that over and over and over again? It's like, well, 
the solution to that is not necessarily to load up more information. The solution to that is to load up more information in your relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus can teach a five-year-old calculus. Like he, can, he can translate the crazy non-language that your flesh is speaking into the language of the Spirit. He, he can make the connections that can't be made anywhere else. Ananias, I think, succeeds, obviously because the Lord wants him to, but I think you can see all of the raw materials for his success in the opening uh, section of, of this passage. And that is, is that the language of relationship is everywhere in this passage. You know, Jesus is his Lord. He is Jesus's disciple. He says that, uh, he says that this man Saul has been persecuting your saints. This sense of belonging to Jesus, of relating to Jesus in a relationship with Christ. Later on, he says, you know, that Saul's persecuting all the people who call on your name. So Ananias already has all the raw materials for him to break through this disobedience because he has an actual vital relationship with Jesus. And so, you know, uh, you know, as a dad, I've got these three Little, these three kids that are like, you know, mostly adults wandering around the world right now. And, and the thing I, I always worry about and think about, pray about, is do they understand that, that, I, that they need to spend time in God's word every day, not so that they can get more information, but so that they can practice the basic rhythms of a relationship with God. Like, I would commend you, every one of you, to spend time in God's word every day, but understand this, if you've grown up in the church, you know, especially if you've had preaching as amazing as this, like, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, you know, stuff, you know, you know, stuff. And if the idea, if, if the, if the test of your time in God's word every morning is um, learning stuff, that's, you're missing the point. The, the, the point of time in God's word every day is to say to God, I need you in my life. I need you. I need a relationship with you. And this is one of the things you tell me to do. This is one of the places you tell me to seek you. It's the same about attending church and community group and so on. These are disciplines we engage in, not for the sake of learning alone, but for the sake of walking with Jesus. And so Ananias' relationship with God, this covenantal relationship based on the gospel of Jesus, the imputed righteousness of Christ, that's what's going to make the difference if he's going to get over this, it's not going to be because he learns any new information. In fact, he doesn't learn any new information in this passage. It's because he's in relationship with Jesus. The third question I want you to ask is, are you afraid of disobedience? We have got a lot of things wrong about fear. And we've got a lot of things wrong about the fear of the Lord. But one of the things we've got to understand is, is that if you don't have the fear of the Lord as the ballast of your soul, you will be blown here and two with a million other fears. And so Ananias here, he's afraid. He's afraid of what Saul's going to do to him. But the question is, is like, is he more afraid of disobedience? Because he should be. Here's the deal. Ananias is actually in more danger in verses 13 and 14, where he's questioning God than he will be in verses 17 and 19 when he goes to see Saul. 
I want you and I want me to be afraid of disobedience, not only because of impending discipline, but because disobedience sets a terrible pattern for our souls. It's essentially like choosing bad posture, but it's, it's a practice, and it's essentially creating a bent, kind of broken relationship with the God of the universe. I am so hesitant to even use this word because th- I'm going to talk about baseball for a minute. And this is the Voldemort of baseball. This is the thing that w- should not be named. But uh, uh, there's this thing called the yips. And in baseball, it's horrifying because it seems so random. And it's the idea out of nowhere, um, there's a, there was a second baseman for the Yankees named Chuck Knobloch. And out of nowhere, he forgot to throw how to throw to second base. And he, would, oh, he was here at first base. He was a second baseman. And so that's a throw that he's making many, many times in a game. And uh, he would just throw 10 feet over the first baseman. So this is a well-tuned, professional athlete. I think he was in MVP contention a few years. He was on all those World Series winning teams for the Yankees. And out of nowhere, boom, this basic thing that he had to do as part of his job, he couldn't do. And it was 1,000% mental. Friends, when you disobey God after he's told you to do something, you're creating unhealth that doesn't just simply stay in one spot. You can't just keep one container of disobedience. This is what God has told me my whole life. And because I really think I can compartmentalize and I can, well, okay, there's this, but there's this. And, you know, I see my, my sanctification is like, a, like, a, like an org chart or something. I'm like, well, that's over here, you know. And God just says, it doesn't work that way. You're, you're announcing who you think I am by your disobedience here. And you're introducing a lack of health. You're, you're introducing a disease of unbelief into the whole system. And you get to these points by resisting God when he tells you stuff, especially when it's really clear stuff. You get to this point when you resist God where like everything is off. And so we ought to fear disobedience. We ought to say, you know, yeah, if I obey, X, Y, and Z might happen. And that's, I'm kind of worried about that. But if I disobey, I'm, I'm taking my soul, putting my soul into jeopardy. Uh, number four, can you stop thinking about yourself? This is the way out of fear 90% of the time. Stop thinking about yourself. And this is what Jesus does for Ananias. Look what he says. Look how, look how Jesus answers Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, back to the, 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 the coddling. Like Jesus will not coddle you in your sinful fears. But what he will do is he will, in fact, Jesus doesn't specifically address Ananias' fears. What he will do is he will invite you to stop worrying about the status of your kingdom and start living for the glory of his kingdom. That's what he'll do. J.I. Packer says it this way. If you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. When God calls us to do something and we're scared of obeying, 
we need courage. And we need God's courage. Like we need real courage to take that next step. Friends, I've seen saints and very, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, move to Africa kind of stuff. I'm just talking about confessing sin, being, being open. So what, I've seen Christians just have this weird injection of bravery out of nowhere. And it's like, well, where did that come from? Well, it came from God. When God calls you to obey and you're afraid, you need courage from the Lord. But here's the key. Here's the key. God will not supply you with fresh courage for you to fight for your kingdom. His courage is for his kingdom. And so what Jesus does to Ananias in this passage is he says, okay, I, let's stop talking about you right now. I have a purpose. I have a plan that's way bigger than you. And your part in it is to go and do what I've asked you to do. There is tremendous relief from fear. Tremendous relief from fear. When we will stop looking at ourselves, stop looking at the potential fallout for ourselves, and start looking at what is to gain in the greater kingdom by our obedience. So, let me just review those for a minute. Do I really want to obey? Is my doubt really defiance? Am I pressing into my relationship with God? Because the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Am I pressing into that perfect love relationship with God? Am I properly afraid of disobedience? Or am I just like only thinking about the, what, what could happen if I obey? Am I really understanding all the danger that comes with disobedience? And, and four, can I stop thinking about myself? Stop thinking about what it's going to do to me and start thinking what it's going to do for Christ. This is how Ananias kind of gets out of this hole that he, you know, almost instinctively dug for himself, as we all do. So the uh, Lord summons, and, and we answer. The Lord commands, and we argue. That's point one, two. Point three is we're going to dial in another degree of granularity in this text and ask this question. What specifically is Ananias afraid of? What specifically is Ananias afraid of? And point number three is loving people is scary. So I mentioned a bunch of things that God tells us to do or not do, like sexual purity and giving and worrying. Like there are all these other things that we could apply this to. But I said earlier, this is an 80% kind of Christian life problem. I would say 80% of that 80% in our lives is this simple command. God tells us to love people like he loves people. And that is almost where almost all the pain can come in our lives. And that is where we would be rightly afraid. Um, the specific, specific application of this story is that God calls Ananias to love someone that Ananias is afraid of loving, afraid to love. And that is, again, I don't have any worries about the relevance of this message this morning because, man, I know we've all gone, been there. I know we all know this. I, I know we've all felt this. We have seen the clear, holy, genuine call of God to love others, even when it hurts us. And we have shrunk back in disbelief and doubt. And we've said to God, I don't think you understand how bad my wife is or how bad my husband is or how bad my boss is and so on and so forth. 
And we've gone through this very pattern that Ananias is working through. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about, this is going to feel like a bit of an offshoot, but I'll bring it back as best I can, is I want to be clear that some of our fear when it comes to loving others has to do with our misunderstanding about God's teaching related to relational boundaries. So there is a category of person, people. In fact, there are, there's, a, there's a category of people very clearly established in the Scriptures that we are taught to avoid. So one of the things that's happening when our, our fear, our inner five-year-old that's just irrational and panicked kicks in is we don't understand how orderly God's relational expectations are. And we think if we say yes to loving people like Jesus loves them, that we will uh, immediately be consumed in the chaos of the foolish. We need to remember that God's word is God's word, and God's word in Proverbs is God's word, and and that's Jesus' word in Proverbs, just as it is in Matthew 5 and so on. I want to teach you this morning, really quickly, about the fool. Uh, It's going to seem unrelated, but I want to teach you this, 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 this real quick kind of teaching on what a fool is, because I want you to see some things related to this idea of, of being scared to love people and what God has already set up in his word. Because I want you to feel comfort from what God has said. So there are five fools, five different kinds of fools in the book of Proverbs. Five different words for fool. We read it, it's fool, 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 almost always. But there are five different levels of fool in the book of Proverbs. And the first one is a pethe, and uh, it just means naive. They're, they're gullible. They're dumb. This is the children. You know, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And then you've got kessel, which is the next step down from there. And this is someone who refuses to learn. And then the third fool is actually the Hebrew. It's actually the word evil. This is, this is the Hebrew name for this fool. And this is without restraint. This is someone without restraint. Um, it's uh, Jake uh, Ketchins, the, the, the commentator that I love for Proverbs, says this evil, the, the Kessel moves downward further to the level of the evil. The evil shares many of the same characteristics of the Kessel, but his moral insolence is taken even further. He refuses counsel. And then from there, Ketchins says, There is, however, yet another step down for the fool. From the derision of the evil, he falls to the level of the Nabal. The term is used just a handful of times in Proverbs, but influenced by its wider use in the Old Testament. We find him to be a dark figure. He shares many of the same character traits as the Kessel and the evil, yet the Nabal uh, goes even further by closing his mind completely to God, even denying his existence altogether. And then the next level is the, it's, this is not, a, I'm, I'm not making this up, but I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly either because I don't do Hebrew well. But the final level of fool is actually called the lutes. And the deepest level, Kitchen says, the deepest level of descent described in Proverbs is that of the scoffer. He despises being amended in his actions or thinking. His arrogant independence makes movement toward wisdom impossible. He has long since rendered himself insensitive to any positive benefit from discipline, rebuke, or instruction. Now, I want you to see this because I want you to understand kind of where Ananias is at as he's thinking about Saul. 
Saul's at level three, at least. And can you go back to that chart just for a second? And, 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 and when you read Proverbs and you see these different kinds of fools being listed, Proverbs is really clear. The one you're supposed to go to is number one. The other ones you're supposed to avoid. Again, let's make sure that our whole sense of God's word is in total and in balance and that we're, we're seeing Matthew 5 and Proverbs as both, both what Jesus is wanting us to think about. And let's also understand that much of our fear about loving people is, is rooted in ignorance that God has set very clear relational boundaries. And he has said very clearly, there are some people that you don't go to. Now, Jesus counterbalances this by insisting, the gospel itself counterbalances this by insisting, you must be very, very careful at assigning people into these categories. You don't get to write off people. You don't get to say, you fool, and be done. But on the other hand, you do. You do. Because at some point, you're going to have to look at someone's life and say, here's the deal. This, this scripture was given to you so that you could make assessments and adjustments in your relationships. So be exceedingly careful. If you use this recklessly, that is, that is to your own detriment. But understand also that God has relational guardrails. God has a sense of, you know, not everybody is somebody that you're going to be called to talk to. And I wanted you to see this, not only because I want you to see that God's, God's not chaotic. He's not calling you into chaos. I want you to see that. But I also want you to see that Ananias, based on the opinions of others, based on the reports of others, thinks that Saul is in level three. And Ananias is like, I mean, why would I go to this man? He's, he's, he's completely disregarding counsel. He's kicking against the goads. He's a fool. Why would I go to this man? But Jesus says, no, that's who he was, but that's not who he is anymore. Now note, Jesus is giving Ananias comfort. He's saying, what you have heard about him may have been true, but it's not true anymore. Now Jesus has done the work to bring Saul from a level three to like, let's say level one, or maybe he's not even on the chart anymore. Jesus has done that work, and that is a green light that's a green light for Ananias to go back and in, go into the life of Saul and, and, and do what Jesus has called him to. So Jesus is, is being very orderly here. He's, he's giving Ananias a reason. He's giving Ananias an ex- explanation in part because he wants Ananias to know he was here. Yes, he's not here anymore. And that's due to me. So we pay attention to what Jesus is doing in people's lives. And when it comes to loving people, one of the most difficult things to balance is that people have a reputation. And it's usually well-deserved. But Jesus does work in people's lives with reputations. And so there's going to be moments when we're called to love people and forgive people and walk with people where we have to balance the testimony of their reputation against the testimony of Christ. And we have to decide, am I going to believe Jesus or am I going to believe man? And that's where Ananias is right now. So why, what, what's the idea here besides this? I wanted you to see that they're having an internal conversation about where Saul is. And Ananias is not being you know, entirely illegitimate in his concerns. What's the, what's the idea here? 
I want to go back to a point we made earlier when I said fear disobedience. If Ananias refuses to go to Saul, he would become a fool. And he would, be kind, he would become the kind of fool that you don't go to. He would become the fool who has the word. He's received instruction. He's received counsel. And he's rejected that counsel. So the, the scary thing about loving people that are hard to love is if you're not careful in your disobedience, you become the thing you think they are. So Ananias, like I said before, he's really in this very dangerous moment right now. He's looking at Saul and saying, I don't know, I think he's a level three fool. And Jesus is saying, he's not anymore. He's not anymore. And uh, Ananias is going to have to decide if he's going to be a level three fool. Hebrews talks about strong meat is for the mature who by constant training discern the difference between good and evil. When God calls us to do something and we disobey or we argue, we're, we're undoing our training. We're unlearning all of the discernment that God's gifted us to. But through the patience of Jesus, through a relationship with Christ, through godly fear of disobedience, a refocusing on the kingdom, the glory of Christ, Ananias is brought through this. I want to add one more point to this. And I think if you look at verse 16, as we're arguing with God because the thing he's calling us to is scary and we're worried and so on, um, let's, let's, let's add another helpful hint. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, For I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know what might help us is to get over this idea that suffering is somehow an optional uh, add-on to the Christian life. It might be good to just go ahead and dismiss that and understand. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Ananias, hey, remember that thing about you must suffer for my name? I'm going to tell Saul that too. But do you remember Let's, let's get rid of this idea that there's an elective down the road at some point in your Christian collegiate journey called suffering, you know, 401 or something. And it's a senior grade course and you, you don't even have to take it. It's not even part of you. No, that's just not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is in part to suffer for the sake of his name. To suffer for the sake of his name. And friends, so many of you, uh, in many respects, are accomplished and, and commendable in so many ways. And in much of what you've done has been through the suffering of saying no to yourself, of delayed gratification. And I want to point something out to you. You have proven that you are capable of suffering for the sake of your name. You've proven that. You're capable of enduring hard things for the sake of your name. Let's stop thinking about ourselves. Because 
you're also capable in Christ, I mean, his amazing, caring, holding, keeping love, you're also capable of suffering for his name. In fact, you're called to it. If we were to crystallize all of this into one singular point, what, that, what would that point be? God calls us to share the gospel with people that we think might do us harm. With people that we think might chastise, criticize, exclude, slander. He has not done that without some kind of uh, legislative grid work, some kind of matrix that we could use to sort out, well, what kind of person is this? But at the end of the day, he calls us to go and share the good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world to people, with people, who, even in their naivete, can do us harm. And God calls, and we argue. So how do we escape that cycle? How do we do what Ananias did? Look at how beautiful this is, verse 17. So Ananias departed. This is a one, one-off conversation. This isn't an enduring season of uh, disobedience with Ananias. This is all one conversation. Jesus gives him an answer, which isn't really answering his concerns exactly, but he's learned to not think about himself again. He's learned to live for the glory of Jesus. He's learned all sorts of things. He's walked in a relationship with Jesus. And so verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I think we're better at imagining how terrible things will go than we are imagining how wonderful things will go. I think we're better at conjuring up uh, forecasts of doom if we obey Jesus than we are in conjuring up and imagining Well, what could go well if I obey Jesus? How will this play out? And of course, in this particular instance, no matter how good your imagination is, you would never imagine that by risking your temporary skin or hide going to this man named Saul, you would see what you see with Saul and Paul, Saul slash Paul, for centuries and centuries and centuries, the legacy of this man whom Ananias, all he was called to do is like go in, uh, pray for him that he regains his sight. All he was called to do was expose himself a little bit and you have this eternal weight of glory as a consequence of that light and momentary suffering. So when God uh, summons and we answer, yes, Lord, here I am, Lord. And then God commands, let's do our best not to argue. Let's do our best to skip right to verse 17 and leave the house and obey. But if we must argue, let's make sure that our doubts are not camouflage defiance. Let's make sure that we stay in relationship with Jesus. We don't run away from him after he's called us to do this hard thing. It would be better not to argue with God, but arguing with God is better than not arguing with God because you're not talking to him anymore. Let's stay in relationship with him. Let's understand that the goal of all of this is so that God could help us stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about him. Let's understand that we are not, as long as we are concerned about our kingdom, 
going to receive a fresh injection of courage from the Lord, when we think about his kingdom, the courage that we need to obey will be there. And let's realize that at the end of the day, we have no assurances that our actions in obedience will not lead to our suffering because suffering isn't an optional feature in the Christian life. It's just part of the deal. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we ask that you would fill our hearts with faith and that you would help us, God, to do better next time when we receive your command. And Lord, I just, I just pray as someone who is totally, uh, not totally, but very familiar in my own life and my own walk with you and my own tendency to do this. And so just as a fellow brother to these brothers and sisters here, Lord, uh, on behalf of all of us, we say, God, we, we do want to acknowledge that our doubts are offensive to you. We, we want to acknowledge that that's not what you deserve. And we want to praise your name for being so faithful and loving and patient with us to endure that insult and press in like a father. Thank you for being compassionate. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us a yoke. And then thank you for letting us learn from you, Lord. Thank you for being so patient with us. Would you give us the faith to see the reality of our own hearts when we bring up these doubts? Would you help us to know if what's really going on here is camouflage defiance? Would you give us the faith to see that your kingdom is worthy of all the kind of hardship and suffering that we would ever endure? And to just stop thinking about ourselves so much, Lord, but to think about you and what you have to gain, Lord. And God, would you just give us faith to see that you don't call us into just crazy relational chaos you don't call us uh, uh, to, to navigate this, the world of relationships without firm, clear, biblical principles. You're, you're an orderly God, but that you do call us, God, to, to live on that edge of discomfort when it comes to loving others. Would you give us faith to do that? Lord, I'm thankful for a, a, an older, wiser pastor who told me earlier this week, that you don't usually fail your saints with, with a test. You just make them take it again. And Lord, I'm just praying that today, there are people here who have been retaking the same test for a long time. And I'm, I'm praying God today, through the power of your spirit, uh, definitely not as a consequence of anything I've, I've said. I, I know what I've said is not sufficient, but I know they're tired of retaking the test. Would you just give them prevailing faith and courage and use your word to give them victory? Pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus.